Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 189 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Simplicity is Power, an interview with Aaron Reeves. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, Aaron taught us that mindset is binary, and you must have a positive mindset and identity in order to be able to heal from Lyme disease. And Rich, Aaron was such a great interview. She taught us so many complex concepts and simplified them for us so they were easy to understand. And she taught us some things that we've never heard before in the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Matt, the simplicity in which Aaron explained very complex concepts was absolutely brilliant. I think it's going to bless our followers. And we are really excited to introduce Simplicity is Power with Aaron Reeves. Hey, Aaron, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me today. Oh, we're really excited to have you, Aaron. So, Aaron, can you share with us where you're currently living and where you grew up? Uh, right now, I'm living in San Diego, California, but I grew up in Plymouth, Massachusetts. So you are an East Coast gal. In fact, you grew up in the Lime Belt. Correct. So talk to us about what it was like growing up in Plymouth, Massachusetts. It was a pretty decent life. Uh, I had the forest behind me and the beach in front of me growing up. We lived in Plymouth for about 13 years before I moved. Uh, we lived in Somerville, just under Boston before that. And um, what was your educational experience like? Went to public school from uh, first grade to 12th. Then immediately after I went to, um, I actually joined the military and I'm now in college, but in Plymouth, it was just public schools. Okay. So talk to us about uh, what your educational experience was like and what kinds of things you were dreaming about doing in your adult life. During high school, I was pretty active. I did a lot of um, extracurriculars, a lot of sports, actually played sports all 12 years through school. I did soccer for the town. I did volleyball for my school. I was also in the technical studies program and I competed for baking actually with the uh, Skills USA uh, organization. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so my goal at the time actually was to become a pastry chef and one day open up an Italian bakery that specialized in wedding cakes. So um, talk to us about how your life took you. Um, did you go to the military first and then college or was it vice versa? No, I went to the military first. I did apply to um, all of the large culinary schools and I did get accepted, but I couldn't afford it. Uh, my living situation just didn't permit it. So I decided to join the military, uh, the Air Force Reserves, straight after high school. I literally went to basics six months after I graduated. So what was that experience like for you when you were in the military? I loved it. I miss it. I do wish I had gone active duty initially, but everything happens for a reason, right? So at some point, did you go active duty? I did not. I tried. But um, during tech school, which is our training after basic, our job training, I actually met my now husband. So it kind of worked out that I was a reservist because he was active duty. So I was able to go with him. So talk to us about um, your college experience and what you studied when you went to college. I'm currently in school right now. I'm in school for business. I'm only six classes away from my bachelor's and the official degree will be a bachelor's of science in business administration. So now you grew up in the Lime Belt in Massachusetts. You had the you had the forest behind you and you had the beach in front of you. So we know that you were you were consistently exposed to ticks during your childhood. Right. What kind of training or what kind of information did you have that allowed you to protect yourself from getting Lyme disease? The only thing I can ever remember being told in my entire time living on the East Coast was just check for ticks when you come in from playing outside. 
and wear bug spray so you don't get ticks on you. That was all I was told. Nobody ever said why. Nobody ever said what to be careful of. It was just very generic. Make sure you don't have any ticks on you. Okay. So were you ever taught how to check yourself for ticks? No, not that I can remember. So you're told to check without giving any specific instructions about how to do that. Yeah, just kind of like a look at yourself once over, make sure you don't see anything crawling on you and call it a day. So was checking for ticks visually something that you did consistently or was it something you were told you might want to do but never did? Uh, Not thoroughly. I never checked thoroughly, that's for sure. Um, Yeah. And I'm sorry, Aaron, when you did check, was it something you did every morning, every night, or was it something you did every once in a while when you were when you were taking a hike? Yeah, it was really mainly only if I had been in like a heavily wooded area or an area with high grass. That was the only time I really focused on checking. Okay. Those were the only situations we were told to be careful in. So um, now you said you were you were told that you should check regularly and should you also use bug spray. So how often would you use bug spray? Was that something you applied every day? Was it something you applied every week? Or was that also something you only applied when you were going to go on a hike? The bug spray I did wear daily just because we had a lot of mosquitoes in our backyard. Um, But like I said, the woods were right there. So, um, but the bug spray, I don't know if it was like the proper kind or what have you. So, so when did you first start to feel the symptoms that you now know to be Lyme disease? uh, When I was about 12 or 13. Okay. What were those symptoms and what, impact was that having on your ability to pursue your dreams as an athlete and ultimately your dreams as a pastry chef? I didn't know what was going on at first. My symptoms presented mainly as um, psychological symptoms. So I just looked like an angsty, depressed teenager, which I mean, my and really what prompted, what I now know prompted it was like one of those quote, traumatic events. Um, a family member had passed away and it was the first family member uh, in my life that had passed away. And I went from a happy uh, adolescent to very, very, very depressed within a week. And that's not the nature of depression to be just like a switch like that. But I just thought that was how I was dealing with my grief of losing that family member. So it just presented that way. And I just kind of went through the next several years, just being very depressed and my academics took a hit. Sorry, go ahead. So prior to that switch being, being mm-hmm. switched, do you recall having been bitten by a tick? I don't. Do you ever recall having been bitten by a tick? No, I never had a bullseye or anything. That so I talk to us know. about now uh, or any other type of rash, which you would now describe as a Lyme rash. Oh, I'm not sure. Okay. So you had this traumatic event that occurred um, and your symptoms begin to develop and they're now, they're now taking off over the course of many years. So give us more details about the symptoms that you were, you were feeling and how that was impacting your ability to succeed at school, to succeed socially, and to succeed as a member of your family. Yeah, mainly it, for me, it boiled down to feeling like I was kind of living an out-of-body experience is really how I can sum up my symptoms. It was like I was living, but I was watching myself live life. I didn't feel connected to myself. Um, and so the, the depression kind of confused me because I didn't feel like there was a true reason to feel that way, which then made me anxious. And um, I tried to say that I felt unwell to family and I was just told I was a hypochondriac. So I kind of 
just disassociated for years and that impacted everything. Um, I lost my, not will to live, but pretty much. Okay. So let's dig a little bit deeper into your family interaction. So mm -hmm. you were, you were feeling this, this depersonalization that you were outside mm -hmm. of your body. Were you describing that to your family members in detail and what family members were you describing it to? Uh, no, I didn't. Cause I thought I was a depressed teenager. So I just stuck to myself, locked myself in my room. Um, my parents actually didn't even know that anything was wrong because to them, I presented as a happy-go-lucky teenager because I tried my best to keep up with life as normal. And were you hiding your true feelings so that no yes. one would see that you were feeling the way that you are? Yeah, because I didn't want them to see me suffering. So, so what, what, what mask were you presenting so that others wouldn't know that you were suffering from this depersonalization? Uh, oh, just keeping up with everything as much I can, pushing myself to the limits to stay above water. I'm tired all the time, uh, brain fog so that my grades were slipping and that was a problem. Um, looking back on it now, there's not one area of life that hadn't been affected by what I now know was Lyme. Now, you said that you're spending most of your time in your bedroom. So I'm assuming mm -hmm. you were having some social challenges as well, where you were not interacting well with your peers. Talk to mm -hmm. us about what your personal relationships were like at that time. I had a very, very small friend group. It was more looking back, it was more or less of like the outcasts, if you will. But I also tried to be friends with everybody. I, I tried to be very personable because, again, I didn't want it known that I was suffering. And what impact did your Lyme symptoms have on your ability to be the friend you wanted to be to everyone, or even the friend you wanted to be to the small group of outcasts that you were hanging out with at, at that time? It made it difficult. Um, crippling anxiety didn't help. The, the guilt that I would feel when I felt too unwell to interact with people, um, that made it really difficult. I carried a lot of guilt for a long time because of that. So um, at some point, did you share with your parents or your friends or the school nurse that you were, you were dealing with these um, depressive symptoms? They found out eventually um, there was some self-harm involved and that's when everybody kind of woke up to it. But even after that, all I was asked to do was see the school therapist once. And then um, people just kept they actually, I really got treated differently afterwards. It was like my worst nightmare come true. People were like apprehensive of how they were approaching me now, which is exactly what I didn't want. So again, I went back to faking that I was okay so that people would stop asking me if I was okay. So why was it bothering you that people were asking you if you were okay after you had engaged in some form of self-harm? I didn't like the attention because in my eyes, it was negative attention. This wasn't a good thing going on. And I didn't like the stigma around it. And I just wanted to be left alone. So talk to us about um, the energy that you had at that time and whether or not all of the energy you had to put into wearing the mask and being someone that you were in and hiding your feelings impacted your level of energy and the fatigue that you were feeling generally. Mm -hmm. And I, I was asleep for at least two periods of school every day. 
because um, I had insomnia too because of the anxiety. So it was just a constant fatigue that until I started getting treated properly, I didn't even know I was feeling because it had become so much part of myself. And how long after the onset of your initial neurological slash psychological symptoms developed, did you begin to get proper treatment? 15 years, almost. So talk to us about what it was like during the course of those 15 years and how these symptoms now developed uh, before you were properly diagnosed. Uh, things, I think once I moved out of my parents' house, once I got married, that was another one of those like traumatic events because it was the first time leaving my family's house, really. And um, I started steadily gaining weight. The depression was still there. Um, so I, I sought the help of a psychiatrist, finally, and a therapist went on the metal, uh, mental health medication route and the therapy route, and that did not help. They, they kept adding medication still under the assumption that it was major depressive disorder and nothing else because all of my normal blood labs were fine consistently for years. So now I'm thinking, am I actually crazy? Because on paper, everything looks fine in the six years that I've been in the military. Um, so everything was very, very hidden. Uh, so I actually, I ended up gaining 70 pounds in three years before getting my diagnosis, which was very difficult. Um, and then finally, I actually started working for the physician who ended up diagnosing me. So we'll get to that in a minute. Let's talk about the weight gain. Do you believe mm -hmm. that the weight gain was a result of the medications you were taking or was it the result of the progression of your um, emotional and, and neurological symptoms causing you to suffer this as a symptom? It was certainly a combination of all of that. Um, due to the anxiety, I was binge eating. Uh, the depression, I was drinking a lot once I was of age. That didn't help. Uh, come to find out, I actually also was diagnosed with celiac disease, and I didn't know that. So this whole time I'm gaining weight and I'm binge eating, I'm eating everything that contains gluten, not knowing I'm actually making myself worse. So let's talk about first the emotional impact that the weight gain was having on you. And then we're going to talk about the physiological impacts of it. So you said that uh, gaining the weight was not good. So what did you mean by that first emotionally? Emotionally, it, it definitely took a toll on me because my entire life I had been a relatively fit athletic woman. And now I am and, and you couldn't really see the weight on me because I'm so tall. I'm five foot 10. Um, at my heaviest, I was two, 218. But from having been so athletic to now not appearing athletic, that was hard for me to deal with. Now, is that something that caused you to have a change of identity where you saw yourself as being someone who had been a fit person and that was your, an important element of your identity to you now being somebody who was no longer fit? Yes, it, it kind of, created a pseudo identity crisis, which made my still out of body experience that I'm having worse. It felt made me feel even more separated from myself. So give us more details about what that depersonalization was like, meaning, can you give us a description of what it's like to be out of your body and watching your life taking place and, and, and how that impacted your, um, your health? It's almost like when you're watching a movie and you, and the main character really resonates with you. Like you almost feel like you're them and you can feel and see and witness all of these things happening to you, but you don't have any control over what's happening. You're just watching it happen. 
you can't do anything about it. That's how it felt to me. It was like, I was screaming at myself to change something, but I couldn't hear myself. It was like deaf ears. If any of that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. It's a Um, brilliant description actually of depersonalization. So talk to us about now how this sort of cycle of weight gain and feeling sicker physically and feeling worse emotionally was developing now before your diagnosis. Yeah. So with, with the depersonalization and the fatigue and everything with those symptoms, I also had a lot of pain, a lot of inflammation. Um, and I, I thought I had just had joint pain forever. When I was 15 years old, I started having sciatic pain. My parents have both had two back surgeries. So I'm thinking it's just hereditary. Um, looking back now, a 15 year old really shouldn't have sciatic pain. <laughs> um, so I had been taking about 1800 milligrams of ibuprofen a day wow. um, for years and which resulted in uh, stomach ulcers. So every symptom that I didn't know what was really happening caused something worse to happen that I ended up addressing, not knowing the root cause of everything. So I'm just take masking symptoms, taking care of symptoms with no real medical help, just Googling symptoms. So Erin, you, you talked about having this window of time where you're gaining this weight that you're treating mm-hmm. with mental health professionals, you're treating with right. psychologists and psychiatrists, mm-hmm. and they're medicating you and changing your medication and changing your medication. Mm-hmm. At any point, did any of these medical professionals ever discuss with you the possibility that you may have Lyme disease because none of the medications that they're giving you or helping you with your neurological and your psychiatric conditions? No, none of them. It went from you have major depressive order with generalized anxiety to we think you might have bipolar two on top of everything else. So they just keep changing your medication over the course of this three-year window and it's never having a positive impact on you and it's never helping you to feel better, but they just keep changing the medicines. They keep changing it. They kept adding. At one point, I was on four different mental health medications. uh, And I kept telling them, I said, look, I think it got me to a new plateau, but I don't really feel better. I feel a little less bad, but I don't feel better. And so that's when they would add or change. Okay. So you said that you ultimately were diagnosed by a doctor that you went to work for. Talk to us about that doctor and the relationship you developed with that doctor. I, I truly feel like I owe that doctor in that clinic everything, honestly. Um, so I, I found them on Indeed when I moved out to California from Florida because I was working as a medical assistant at the time. And it was a rheumatology center that I had never worked in rheumatology before. So I didn't think anything of it. I hadn't heard back from them in about a week, but then they gave me a call, asked me to come in for an interview that day, and I was hired on the spot. Then two weeks into training in my new position, I was training on this um, diagnostic tool they used there called thermography, which is just thermal imaging. And uh, it's one of the tools that that doctor uses for diagnostic stuff. And uh, I had the PA who works under that doctor there come look at what the side of my arm looked like on the thermal imaging. The scale we used was like a gray scale and it looked like I was covered in leopard prints my entire, and then we looked at my back and it was all leopard print. So I looked to the PA and I said, what did that mean? And she said, I should, her words were, you should probably get a referral to be seen here as an actual established patient. And did you do that? I did. 
And yeah. how was that experience different than any other doc you were treated with um, prior to going to that, um, that doctor's office? It was the first time I actually felt heard by a medical professional. It was the first time I left an appointment feeling better and feeling understood in that I felt like I actually had answers for the first time and like I wasn't actually crazy. All right, so let's pause there for a second. Mm -hmm. You had seen many doctors before you went to see this doctor and you had a lot of different symptoms that you were bringing to your doctors. And one of the things that I always like to try to tease out is how much of the diagnostic failure is based on the failure to properly train doctors and mm -hmm. how much of the diagnostic challenges are presented by people wearing a mask and not really sharing all their symptoms as part of the disease. How much of you think the diagnostic challenges that you faced before seeing this doctor were generated by your disease and your failure to properly or fully explain everything that you had? And how much of it do you think was, was based on the medical training failures or the mindset failures of the doctors you were treating with before? I think it's about 50-50, as much as I think a lot of patients like myself would like to completely blame doctors. I also didn't know the right questions to ask or how to advocate for myself. Um, had I known better, obviously I would have. Now, as far as the medical professionals, I think there is a gross lack of training for them because if any of those doctors had just ordered another test, another blood test, a more specific blood test, we could have known long before. Baron, you were working as a medical professional yourself. Correct. So talk to us about what you learned during any of your training or any of your experience about Lyme disease during that window of your career. Until I started working for that rheumatologist, I didn't learn anything about Lyme disease at all. <laughs> so now in your experience as a, as a medical professional, what were the differences that you would observe between the people who had interacted with doctors and had a good experience and the people who interacted with doctors who had a bad experience? Meaning, were there some people that just garnered better responses from doctors or were the, were the doctors just not good at gathering the information they needed to gather to properly help the people who are with them? I think, Sorry, brain fog. Can you repeat your question? <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm asking you now, when you were in, when you were a medical professional right. and you were now working with doctors and patients, mm -hmm. right. now observing the interaction between the doctors and the patients that you saw, not when you were a patient, but when you were watching other patient and doctor interactions, mm -hmm. what type of doctors and what type of mindset did they have when they were serving patients the best? Let's start with that first. I think the doctors that I've seen that served patients the best were much more open to listening to the patient and asking the patient follow-up questions to dig deeper. Okay. Now let's talk about the patients you saw who got the best results. How do they behave differently when interacting with their doctors than the patients who didn't get as good a result? I think it definitely depends on the facility, uh, first of all, and the type of clinic that it is. Um, honestly, I think sometimes the patients who don't ask questions and just kind of yes, the doctor through the appointment are the ones that get the better treatment because I feel like the doctors sometimes get offended if you offer information that they might not have thought of and they don't take to that very well because they're the doctor, so they should know, right? But they're the doctor, so they should know, right? <laughs> 
So now let's fast forward to your interaction with the doctor that you're now working for, right? Mm -hmm. And you said he was very different than any other doctor that you have seen before, including, I guess, the doctors that you had worked with professionally. Mm -hmm. He listened to you. Correct. Now, how did he signal to you that he was willing to listen to you? And how did that impact you as a patient giving information to a doctor that was different than any way that you had given information to a doctor before? He was the only doctor that asked me if I had any idea what was causing my symptoms, not just what my symptoms were. He wasn't trying to treat my symptoms. He was trying to find the root cause of them. And that was unlike any experience I had had. And how did that make you feel? And why did that cause you to give this doctor more information than you had given any doctor before? I felt like I could trust him. It felt like he was open to any information that I had had, regardless of his status as a physician and my status as a patient. Um, he would prompt questions if, it, if I seemed confused or like I didn't know how to explain what was going on. Um, it was just the, it was such a different experience that I really, it's hard to explain. Well, I think you explained it brilliantly. And it sounds to me like this is a doctor who wanted a partnership with you. Mm -hmm. This was not a doctor who was looking to tell you what you needed to do. Right. It really felt like he was on my side. Like I finally had somebody rooting for me other than the support systems I had, but a, a medical professional rooting for me to get better. So talk to us about how that developed, not just from the standpoint of the relationship they have with the doctor, but how your treatment plan developed with this doctor. So the, the treatment plan, since this doctor actually diagnosed me, was extremely targeted to what was causing all of the issues. And uh, what also helped is the clinic that I worked at, there were 8,500 patients registered to that clinic. So I now had a place where I could go where 8,500 other people felt the exact same way I did. And that was an, a weird feeling. It was the most reassuring feeling, but it was weird to be in that environment. So Aaron, talk to us about how this doctor did diagnose you and how that diagnostic journey was different because you finally got to a diagnosis mm -hmm. after suffering from these same symptoms and seeing many doctors over 15 years. Mm -hmm. So like I mentioned, we, it started with that diagnostic tool, the thermography that I was learning about. And it turns out that the leopard print on my body was a sign of the infection Bartonella, which is a common Lyme co-infection, right? So once we saw that, that's when I came back in a week later and we drew, I think, 12 to 15 tubes of blood. There were probably 27 tests on the paper, um, none of those have ever been tested before this experience. Um, it was the most specific testing I had ever seen. So this chance experience you had with using the thermography machine mm -hmm. gave the doctor the clue that he needed, along with doing a thorough interview that triggered him to now test your blood in a way that no one else had before. Correct. So when the blood test came back, what'd they find? Uh, that I had three positive Lyme bands, one of which, according to this doctor, was rare as far as Lyme's concerned. It was the P18 band. And for him, that was the diagnosis. Um, we also did another test through Galaxy Diagnostics to see if I had Bartonella, and both strains of Bartonella came back as high as they run. 
Um, so I was diagnosed with Lyme plus multiple co-infections. So Bartonella as well as mycoplasma pneumonia, celiac, um, and those were the main ones. Sarah, walk us through now that you have these test results, what you started mm -hmm. to do to treat the Lyme and the Bartonella. So I started with oral antibiotics for the Lyme. I was doing uh, low doses of thromycin daily, as well as some supplements that were recommended from the physician. The azithromycin I was on for about 18 months, uh, taking about a month break here or there in between. Uh, now, actually, I'm doing the uh, Bicelin LA shots, which are kind of like a penicillin, but it's an antibiotic injection that I get every two weeks. So when you did the 18 months of the antibiotic at first, mm -hmm. walk us through what that was like. Did you start to feel better pretty quickly? Did you herx? Walk us through the beginning of your treatment journey. The, the beginning was okay. And then it got really rough in the middle, but my physician did tell me at the beginning that if I wanted to go down this route, because they were so sure that it was already in its chronic form, that I was most likely going to get worse before I got better. Um, and I definitely did. <laughs> I'm still in the middle of that stage right now, but at least knowing the diagnoses, it makes a huge difference. But so yeah, things got worse when I started treatment. And, um, had worse fatigue, worse body aches. My joints were killing me. Uh, my husband ended up deploying in the middle and my back went out because the Bartonella was attacking the tendons and ligaments in my lower back. So from November of 2019 until about May of, no, yeah, about May of 2020, I was uh, using a cane to walk. Um, and I was in traction at physical therapy. Uh, I had to wear dresses because I couldn't really bend over to put pants on. Um, I was still working through it all though, full time at that clinic and a student. So th things were really rough and really stressful. So is there anything that you found that's been helpful to treat these symptom flare-ups while you're treating that you can, you can recommend to our listeners? So for example, you mentioned you had bad fatigue, you had bad uh, back aches and joint pain. Is there anything you're doing from an herbal standpoint or a supplement standpoint or a physical therapy or a chiropractic standpoint that you feel has helped you overcome some of these flare-ups that could also help our listeners? Yeah, actually foam rolling helped my back pain tremendously. It was really the only thing that did that in Pilates helped my back a lot. So when my back starts to go out or I feel the sciatic pain starting to flare, I'll foam roll, I'll do some Pilates exercises and uh, yoga helped a lot. So walk us through the foam rolling. A lot of people have back pain associated mm -hmm. with Lyme and other co-infections. So a foam roller, I know you can buy on Amazon pretty cheaply, right? And right. it sounds like it's something that people can do at home to get some, some symptom relief while they're treating. So what exactly is involved in using a foam roller to alleviate your back pain? So I found this really great video on YouTube when my back went out and it's specifically uh, foam rolling for lower back pain. And you start kind of mid back and you work your way down your back on the foam roller. And then the part that surprised me actually is my hamstrings and my quads were so tight from years of uh, being athletic and never properly cooling down, that those were actually causing my back pain. So when I would go over my hamstrings or quads, I would feel my back start to crack and pop as if I went to a chiropractor. And so that was everything kind of like de-stressing itself. And so then I would do the yoga afterwards. So I think it's a really important tip that many of us have learned mm -hmm. that just because you're having pain in one part of your body, it doesn't mean that's the actual source of the pain. It could be being triggered from somewhere else. 
And that is one of the biggest lessons I learned in this whole Lyme journey, that just because one area hurts does not mean that's the area where the problem is. So throughout this 18 month period before you started the Bicillin shots, Give us an idea of how your symptoms improved as well. Obviously, you know, you had some perksing and symptoms worsened, but what improvements did you make throughout this 18-month window? Oh, I, so I lost a lot of weight as a byproduct of this, which was one of the really positive things to come out of all of this. I definitely took charge of my health. So when my symptoms weren't flaring, I was able to go to the gym six days a week. I was able to cardio, um, everything as if nothing was wrong. Now, was this something that you had a block of time where you were feeling really bad and then all of a sudden it just was a big block of, of good days? Or was this a time where you had some really good days and some really bad days throughout this 18-month period of getting the antibiotics? Throughout the whole thing, it, it's pretty much a day-to-day thing. Um, I like to try to plan a while in advance, but uh, I've now had to kind of reconcile with friends and family to understand that even though I say I can do something, it might not happen. It, it's very much a day-to-day. Do you think that your lows were lower, but also your highs were higher once you started treating? Completely. And I, but I also think it's important to understand that the lows were lower in a different way. Like physically, things were worse. But mentally, even though it was a, a quote, bad day, I was already in a better place mentally just having my diagnosis. So just knowing what was going on or being able to blame any of the weird symptoms online made it easier for me to deal with it because it wasn't me. I could separate it from myself. So Aaron, a lot of people, once they get their Lyme diagnosis, maybe try something, don't have great success, and then they get stuck and don't treat. And some people stay there for years, sometimes decades. What advice would you give those people who are afraid of either A, thinking they're never going to get better, or B, I don't want to get worse than I am today? Well, here's a question. Do you want to be miserable or do you want to be miserable with a plan on getting better? That's really what it is. Either way, you're going to feel like crap. So do you want to feel like crap with an ultimate goal of remission or do you want to just feel like crap? That was, that was what I was faced with. So let's expand upon that though. So do you believe if people don't treat that are in that scenario, that they're going to get worse with no purpose, but in your situation, you're treating you are having flare-ups, but you're treating with purpose. I, I do think that's what it is. So walk us through now, what made you decide to stop the 18-month period of your azithromycin and then pivot to getting these injections of, I'm sorry, injections of the bicillin? I was plateauing with my treatment. So I, we just got to a point where my numbers weren't improving as, re- as steadily as we wanted them to. So we decided, oh, and I started having stomach issues that the Bartonella kind of threw off. I ended up getting a mast cell reactions and that's where my food allergies came into play. But, um, I'm so sorry. I lost my train of thought. I was asking why you, you changed the treatment course oh, and the plateau. you plateaued essentially, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you did just mention mast cell, which is very common with Lyme disease. So talk to us about how you and your doctor identified that you were experiencing mast cell activation and what you did to now address that. So originally what had happened is I was just eating foods like normal, like any, like I had for the past 20 odd years of my life, but some foods after I would eat them, I would feel really nauseous or I'd feel feverish, or I would break out in hives, like all over my body and see visible inflammation. 
that wasn't there prior to eating whatever food. Um, was there any testing that you did with your doctor? So for example, were there any, any lab work, any blood work or any testing to identify that you for sure had mast cell? I, we didn't do the blood test for mast cell. We did do an allergy test though. And we, we did do a histamine blood test. So we ruled out everything else until the doctor finally said that, yes, that's what we think is going on. Um, but we just stayed treating the Bartonella specifically. The changes we made once we identified that that was most likely the, the cause is we ended up doing um, the allergy test, like I said. So I'm on a very, very limited diet. Um, and we ended up doing uh, some GI testing as well to see what was going on there, which was also another reason why we stopped the oral antibiotics. I ended up with a few stomach infections because of it. So were your GI testing that you did, was there any indication or overlap with the GI tests that had something to do with the mast cell or was that separate from the mast cell? Uh, they, they actually played off each other. It turned out that I had um, two strains of candida overgrowth in my gut and the candida actually showed up as one of the things on my allergy test that I was severely sensitive to. So anytime I ate any kind of sugar, that would throw off the candida and I'd have this full body allergic reaction. So I think before I, before I got regulated on the foods, I was taking three to four Benadryl a day just to eat. <laughs> so this truly is the whack-a-mole. I'm, I'm, I'm visualizing this as you're telling this, your, mm -hmm. your journey, you're treating with the azithromycin, which is helping your Lyme and Bartonella, but it's also causing candida overgrowth in your gut which is now triggering the mast cell, which is making you feel sick because of another, another thing caused from the treatment, right? So exactly. it's this constant whack-a-mole to address all of your symptoms to get you in a better place. But I do want to learn more about the mast cell diet. It sounds like you really perfected that. And many people, as, as we noted, do have mast cell activation mm -hmm. syndrome or at, at a minimum food allergies due to Lyme. Mm -hmm. What specifically is your diet like and how has that helped you overcome a lot of these symptoms? So... <laughs> The, the foods that I can eat that are safe to eat, it's a shorter list than the foods that, that are unsafe for me to eat. So for the past year, almost 18 months now, because I got the allergy test March of last year, um, I've mainly been eating chicken, green beans, and sweet potatoes or rice. That, that's been the, my main food for the past 18 months. Um, it's basically as if I was going to be a, a bodybuilding or bikini competitor one of that's the kind of diet I'm on. Um, it's, it, it's not fun. It's very bland, but I feel better when I don't eat the foods that I'm not supposed to. So it, it's kind of one of those things where I'm going to suffer if I eat the foods I want, or I'm going to suffer by not eating the foods that I want, but feeling healthier overall. So it's kind of that decision that I had to make. Do I want to eat like regular or do I want to get better? So it sounds like we're coming back to the same scenario as we were on earlier, where do you want to suffer for no purpose or do you want to, do you want to limit your diet and maybe not experience the food you want, but have a positive health benefit as an outcome of that, right? Exactly. So these injections, we've heard a lot about people getting injections of antibiotics. And I know we've had some people get them injected in their arm. Our, our past guest, past podcast guest was getting injections in her arm. We've had other guests get these injections in their butt. And why are they different than traditional antibiotics? You know, is, is it affecting your gut differently? And why did your doctor decide to pivot to that particular model versus either oral or IV antibiotics? Um, IV, I'm not sure. I, I just don't think that was something I inquired about. 
Uh, maybe I wasn't at the point where that had to be considered, which is fine with me, but we chose the injections over the oral because of the effects that it had on my GI system. So the reason we do the intramuscular is so it completely bypasses that. So it sounds like this is a really good hack for those who are having GI issues due to antibiotic treatment for Lyme disease <laughs> and maybe experiencing severe stomach pain, um, gut inflammation, et cetera. This is, could be something they can look at with their Lyme later doctor as an alternative to continue to treat with antibiotics, but bypass a lot of the GI issues that you just described. I think it's definitely something that the patients, if they aren't doing it, it would be a, a good conversation to have at the very least, just to inquire. You know, and, and shots can sound scary, but give us an idea. I mean, is it painful? Is it a simple process? Because a lot of people hear about giving themselves, you know, shots on their own, and that's a turnoff, and it sort of makes them not want to proceed with it. But I think from your experience, it's probably something that you've become accustomed to, and I think now would recommend to others, it sounds like. Well, the good thing is I don't have to give them to myself. I go to my, my doctor and it's injected in the office. So that way, if anything happens, I'm already at the office. Um, the, they're not really painful. It really depends on your pain tolerance and how you deal with needles. But there's lidocaine that's mixed to it when it's reconstituted because I get the powdered form because um, there's two different forms of it. And they also you can use cold spray, which is like a topical numbing. I don't really use that. I think that hurts worse. But to each their own. So now it's been about, what, about a total of two years since you've been treating now, about 18 months of azithromycin and yeah. uh, a few months now of these injections. Yes. Has there been anything else that you've done aside from those two items alongside those treatments that have been helping you as well? Meditating, actually. I've just recently started that this year and that's helped a lot. Uh, it's helped with my anxiety primarily. Um, I'm sleeping better now with it. And then trying to stay active has actually helped. I have a very busy mind. So on my days that I'm feeling well enough, I'm, I'm bouncing around my house, making as much use of the energy as I have while I have it. So let's talk about the first part of that answer that you gave us, which is the meditation. Mm -hmm. I know it's hard for me to to grasp that concept, you know, prayer is one thing, but meditation is, is a very difficult concept. And I think for many people that have an overactive nervous system or an overactive mind. So how did, how are you able to bring yourself into a place where you can meditate and get to that point of peace when you, as you noted, have such an overactive body and mind yourself as well? It was difficult, um, especially with my Bartonella, because I did a, a pseudo scan that showed I do have some neurological disorder. So I'm always in fight or flight, which is why I started the meditation. Um, and I, I was never one to really believe in meditation until I actually tried it and gave it an honest effort. And that has helped give me the tools to hinder panic attacks when I feel them coming on. It's taught me how to breathe properly to calm myself down. And it's made the anxiety more manageable for sure. So when you mentioned the fight or flight mm -hmm. results from that test, I think a lot of people in the Lyme community think that they may be stuck in a fight or flight mode as a result of all the trauma that comes with Lyme mm -hmm. disease. What specific testing was it? I think many of our listeners, listeners would be interested in knowing how to run tests that can be indicative of if they are stuck in fight or flight or not. Yeah, it was called a pseudo scan. And what they did is they put blood pressure cuffs on both of my arms, uh, finger probes on both uh, index fingers and blood pressure cuffs on my calves. And then I had my feet on this thing that almost looked like a scale. And it, the whole test took about 10 or 15 minutes and it walks you through breathing prompts. 
and it measures your breath, your heart rate and everything through these different prompts to see what your, your resting system is at. So in addition to, in addition to all this, you, you give us an idea of your anxiety because anxiety and depression is a very common symptom. And now that you've been treating for almost two years using meditation and a variety of other techniques alongside with your antibiotics to treat the underlying tick-borne illnesses, has your anxiety improved over the past two years? Yes and no, um, because it's something that is so affected by the infections right now. There's only so much I can control with it. Um, but that in itself has been helpful, knowing that at least I know I'm doing everything I can with the anxiety. Uh, it, it really did get bad to the point where I thought I had a heart issue because I was having palpitations and like literally panic attacks almost every day. And my hands would shake and I was a phlebotomist as, as well as an MA. So it's really hard to do my job if my hands are shaking, right? Uh, so that's when the meditation, where, when I really gave that a try because I had to do something different. But I do think there's some overlap there. You mentioned that you would have heart palpitations, you'd have physical uh, yeah. symptoms as a result of your anxiety. But I think it's twofold that anxiety can create some of those symptoms. But I also yeah. think the underlying tick-borne illnesses can create those symptoms as well. So it's right. hard to determine which one is being triggered by what. Is it the infection causing the symptoms or is it anxiety causing the symptoms? So from your personal standpoint, how have you been able to delineate? Is it a herx? Is it the infection or is this anxiety and I need to meditate and calm down my nervous system? It's kind of difficult to distinguish all of that. My, my physician says that the level of my anxiety is directly correlated to the infection. Um, that being said, I just kind of see it all as the anxiety, if you will. So I just treat it as it's not my anxiety or the Lyme's anxiety. It's just the Lyme's anxiety. It has nothing to do with me. So I'll take care of it separately because for me, it's really important to separate it from myself. So you did also mention that you would exercise when you can to help mm -hmm. alleviate a lot of your anxiety and also your overactive mind. So mm -hmm. many people when they hear that in the Lyme community counter with I'm bed bound or I'm very limited. So are there any exercises that you do or can recommend to people that are extremely limited from a physical standpoint that can help them at least get their body moving, hopefully generate some endorphins and help and help them heal from that physical movement? Honestly, yoga, slow, slow, easy yoga. It's easy on the joints. There are many, many videos online to take things slow. There's actually a lot of yoga you can do in your bed. So that's, that's a really great way because that at least gets you moving a little bit. You feel like you're doing something and it's physical exercise. So you're, you're hitting all the buttons there. Do you do anything else from a detox standpoint? Because it sounds like you're doing a lot of kill off with these mm -hmm. tick-borne illnesses. So are you doing anything to open up your drainage pathways to allow your body to purge the die off of these toxins? If I remember to, I take activated charcoal um, to help bind to everything. I use the hot tub in my apartment. I do Epsom salt baths. I also have a little personal pop-up sauna that I use sometimes to help sweat out everything. And talk to us about binders because we did a post few weeks ago about binders. And we got a lot of questions about timing and what medications you can and cannot take binders with. So is there a particular time frame you have to take your binders? Meaning, can you take other medication and then directly have to take your, your binders or that you have to space that out with your other medications? Uh, my physician advised taking it about two hours away from everything else. Um, usually what I do personally, because I'm really bad with my time management right now is um, I'll try to take it at least an hour after my last meal 
So that way I know I'm, I'm full till my next meal and it's not interfering with the nutrients that I'm trying to get. Um, but I haven't been told specifically to not take it with other things. Like I just have to take it away from them. So in a, in a very short period of time, you've done a lot and yeah. it seems like you've made a lot of progress already and you're continuing on that path. So before I hand it back over to Rich, I just want to get an idea of give me something that you've been able to do in the past several months that you never dreamed of doing when you first got diagnosed several years ago. I became a published model. <laughs> I never thought that would happen in any world, regardless of why. <laughs> like, um, but I, I felt like that was the way I could bring attention to it, to Lyme. So talk to us about that. Talk to us about the transformation that you've made, which in part has now caused you to be a, uh, a published model and why you believe that would not have happened had you not gone on your Lyme disease journey. I, I knew nothing really about health and proper nutrition prior to Lyme. Um, so that definitely opened my eyes as to, to being aware of what I'm putting into my body. Uh, so that has helped a lot with it all. Um, so the, so the dietary changes that you made, which mm -hmm. were necessary for you to go on your healing journey have yeah. presented in a way that's now caused you to appear to be so fit that you can now release photos of yourself that have caused you to be a published model. Right. And you'd have no idea that at some of those photo shoots, my hands were shaking like that, <laughs> um, from the anxiety of it all. But yeah, I, I just, I feel like Lyme put such a pause on my life in the sense that I had to give up the idea of control. Cause like I said, I don't know how I'm going to feel tomorrow. So Lyme definitely put things into perspective for me to truly live in the moment and enjoy the days that aren't bad because tomorrow might be, and that's just reality for us. So are there any other elements of beauty on this journey? And again, Obviously, there's been beauty in the photographs that you've been able to participate in and have published, but what other beautiful elements of this journey um, have you experienced that you believe you would not have experienced, but for the suffering you've gone through with Lyme disease? I'm more grateful for the good days. I'm more grateful for the, the support of friends and family who have been supportive. Um, and I, I'm, I almost feel like it's a superpower in a way, because it's like we're living life on hard mode, but we're still able to live. You know, and if that's not strong, then what is? Amen. So now, Aaron, I have a final question for you. And that is, if God forbid your husband, who we saw coming in and out of the uh, frame today, walked <laughs> over to you after this podcast and he had a tick biting him on his leg, <laughs> what would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go on a terrible Lyme disease journey? Uh, we would save the tick for testing. We would go straight to the doctor and immediately start the antibiotics for two weeks, just as a prophylactic while we wait for the blood results to come in. And thankfully we know every test to test for now. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Erin Reeves. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Erin Reeves, please visit our Instagram page at AmericanHoney, A-M-E-R-I-N-C-A-N underscore H-O-N-E-Y. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information and has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. 
And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.